exactly, Wichichi. I'm so popular, and we're approaching the very tail end of season two. And these last few weeks, we've been thinking about the destruction of false illusions and embracing true reality, as well as repositioning fame as an artistic experience. And continuing that as we reach the end of the world. I am here with a very special guest to discuss David Bowie's two albums, Young Americans and Heroes, as well as the wonderful Paul Verhoeven film Showgirls. And I have a wonderful guest with me. Who are you? I'm Barrett. Uh, Barrett Avner is my full name. And Hi, Barrett Avner. What are you I, doing? I'm uh, watching Showgirls on mute and wandering around my my place. And just kind of, uh, you know, getting in the mood. I, I like to walk around. I wish I was not stationary, but I like literally sit in the exact same place doing the podcast every time on the floor, um, on my table, looking out at the Shinjuku skyline and my laundry that's hanging up. Um, but my oh, last question beautiful. is, why do you follow me, Barrett? Why do I follow you? Because you're interesting and I found you on the... <laughs> and it's just one of those things where... Uh, I know other people who follow you, and um, I, I'm interested in the whole uh, drag queen who has um, uh, interesting opinions about things and lives in uh, Japan, and like I'm just interested in things that are different, I guess, if that makes sense. Beautifully said. No, it totally does. <laughs> I, I don't know, like... That's it's not like super complicated. No, no, that's perfect. I mean, um, in the terms of the internet circuits that have brought us together, um, I was very fortunate to be introduced to your wonderful podcast, Contain, and um, I also had the honor of, of guesting on it in a really special episode about a Japanese communist film and Pinguega and um, body horror. And I'm always just so delighted that. Uh, this corner of people on the internet who are just, you know, chattering away about art and philosophy and uh, nothing and everything uh, can link people together who have uh, moving opinions about art that is rarely spoken about. So I'm very happy to have you here, especially since um, I find the mission of your show and the conversations you generate from the art you talk about so wonderful. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. No, it's my pleasure. I think Contain is really one of the most exciting podcast projects going on right now. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what your vision of it was and how it came to be? Uh, you know, it's actually really kind of, it's not that interesting because it was, you know, like most podcasts or, or long form projects done out of like emotional despair and, and desperation. So yeah. I, it was like going through a breakup with somebody who was super, super fucking psychotic, who just kind of like rearranged my life like a fun house. And I didn't know who I was anymore. I had no clue who I was. I didn't know what I liked. And it was just sort of like this process of using a medium that I had never used before and also like making music for it and, and you know, keeping up the the because I, I come from like a music and, and visual art background mostly and and just kind of being like well how can I take all these forms in like a gestamped work way and and sort of merge them all together with the books that I'm reading 
and you know the kind of conversations I'm interested in having that are really off roster for the worlds that I come from it's like I can't have these in these worlds like I have to invent my own like there's really no other way so I mean that's that's basically it um you know it just comes from that from from mostly that place it's not um (laughs) no but I think that's so incredible and it's exactly how I felt when I started my project as well which is that you know some great point of despair and a, a need and a desire for a world that doesn't quite exist in the accessible reality that you have like being able to form that and conquer your despair through a, a will to power of podcasting is exactly why I'm here as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you see people who don't have that desperation who already have, um, they've already sort of gotten what they wanted and they just want a little bit more. They usually don't, don't keep it, keep doing it for very long. So it's, it's incredibly rare uh, and I don't think people understand, like, it's actually a lot of work. It's not easy <laughs> um, uh, to to keep up a podcast. And, you know, I'm fortunate to have been doing it for two years now. And, uh, yeah, it's great. I, I don't have any complaints. No, I mean, that's the whole purpose of, like, my Patreon pre-show or whatever is to, like, unveil the labor of the podcast because, um... It really is a lot of work to make this happen. And you really can tell immediately with other podcasts and with artistic projects when people do not have that desire and that absolute like need to conquer their despair. Like I have seen so many garbage podcasts and unemotional people just produce the worst content you've ever imagined for no reason other than that they just want more which is not enough you have to have fury to be a successful podcaster well and it's also like the kind of fury that people think they have is over these kind of like abstract uh political policy wonk uh current event (laughs) you know what i mean where where it's almost like you're just sort of relaying 4chan or the news or whatever you want like uh whatever and I think that sort of like dogmatic thing is just basically like, yeah, you're just channeling a, a broad sentiment that you have found and you're regurgitating it to those people. But um, to actually go through and examine things in a in a serious way, because it's really we're sort of in this really hard time in culture where um, the universals that we once had. Uh, are no longer there. We have too many ways of viewing too many things and there is no sort of like shared. um, And actually I was in your TPN episode with Amanda Milius, you know, putting on a record like a Black Sabbath album and uh, having a bunch of stone people just sitting around at the tail end of a party. You know, like I remember when I was younger and I was like more of a metalhead. I mean, I still am, but but that's beside the point. Um, we would put on like Diamond Head records and like Maiden and just kind of like light couches on fire and do a bunch of cocaine. And, and that was like, you know, break everything in the fucking house. And, it, you know, like we don't, <clears throat> there's so many options now. And, and I think, I don't know, like, yeah, the garbage podcast, like how many fucking, you know, like you don't need... I don't really think social media translates to the kind of 
long form creative success that people think it does. Like anybody, anybody can get fucking a hundred thousand followers on a social media site. If they do, if they fucking play it safe and they do it by the books, but like most of those people can't even like, nobody will pay for the shit that they do. I mean, like they don't make a living off of that. They're sort of just kind of like using that to, gain leverage or favors within another institution but like for what i want to do there really isn't one available because i just i don't really trust institutions and i don't really like them and i just don't like authority Uh, right and i think if you're sort of somebody who just doesn't like authority you kind of have to do something a little bit different Well, yeah, because I love the idea of, uh, you know, being able to sit around with your friends and, like, listen to, you know, hedonistic apocalypse music while you, like, are ravaging your body with drugs and setting couches on fire. And it's, like, I used to do, a you know, a similar route with, like, gay sex, basically, and just trying to uh, reach the absolute limits of my experience by having the worst and most terrifying sexual interactions possible. And as, like, that becomes, like, more distant and... Uh, becomes like less of a livable reality as time goes on and gay people become more castrated and frightened of each other in a uncompelling well, li- way. Well, liberalism is is deeply mm-hmm. sexualizing. <laughs> I, I, yes. I like we don't it's if there's one downside to it, it's that it's atomized and individuated people to the point where Eros no longer exists. And it's like you almost start to see it in like the sex negative stuff. And I really do see a time when like people like Joe Biden will basically be like no gay sex. Like, I really do think that I I, I do too, because everything is based on situation, like what's expedient and representation. What is something supposed to look like a president supposed to look like a president? Uh, A dog is supposed to bark like they're so conservative in their thinking that there's there's no way if the tides turn they wouldn't just ban all of it. Like, like seriously, mm-hmm. I really do think that. No, I do too. And I'm, I'm reading a intercourse by Andrea Dworkin right now. And she talks a lot about how, uh, <laughs> she well, talks she a was lot about how like, she was. And, but what's so funny is that she innately believed that, uh, despite the innate violence and, um, you know, dehumanization and destructive quality of, of sexual interaction and penetration, she believed that that kind of horror could be translated into a sort of, like, transcendental tenderness and a true, like, merging of two people and um, a real sensation of love. But now everyone is so afraid of being damaged by sex and they're so afraid of of rape of the soul and spirit that, of course, like, a popular political figure would um, absolutely be happy to ban it because there's not even um, the courage to take a risk and to put yourself in a vulnerable position anymore. And so instead of uh, taking the chance and, you know, flinging yourself at something dangerous and sexual uh, at the chance of reaching something more sublime, people will just uh, lop their dick off and retreat into the pod. Yeah. Well, I interviewed the head of the World Transhumanist Association. And he's basically a lifelong incel propped up on SSRIs whose whole thing with transhumanism is like, he wants to simulate and replicate sex and he's a total pro-natalist. So he's like, 
everyone needs to have children because children make people happy, but we should remove the process that imbues people with pain and torment, <laughs> which is which is exactly what you're talking about. Like, so it's a kind of like reprodu it's a, it's reproducing something for its own sake. Now, like Nietzsche is really interesting because for him in Beyond Good and Evil, he talks a lot about the idea of what is evil. Evil is nothing. Like the truth is, is that evil doesn't really exist. Evil is advancing nothing. So it's basically like a machine advancing like some Jane Fonda, like um, sexual experience where the people don't touch and they can achieve coitus. Like when you don't touch and there's no love and there's no risk because, you know, suffering is basically the, the, the metric of all men at this point. Like uh, basically what are you willing to sacrifice? That's, that shows you who you are, how yeah. much pain, how much pain can you take? Like, you're not really a subject, are you? Like you're more of an object. <laughs> and, and I, and I, yeah. So it's just this objectification of everybody. And Bowie is so cool because um, to me, because he, he changed on his own and it, the times are different though, you know? Right. I mean, this is all to say that like, um, unless you're suffering and putting yourself through hardship and, uh, you know, a little bit of a masochist, you can never create something uh, truly beautiful and important in art. And when it comes to these two records we're talking about today, David Bowie is someone who I've always found had such a incredible and moving skill to turn the narratives of his own life into a moving piece of artwork. And, um, I, I'm really excited to talk about these two records because I feel like they are really essential keys in, in understanding like what I've been doing with the podcast for months. But I'm curious to hear about your relationship with David Bowie because I know that you know you have a, a little bit of a history with him. Well, I really, really love David Bowie. And he's one of my favorite artists ever by far. And it's not even, oh my God, there's an Amber Alert. Fuck, do you hear that? No, that's exciting. Who's missing? Wait, wait. Yeah, it's a child abduction in San Antonio. I'm getting this like really loud beeping on my end. I'm sorry about that. I wish no, that I was, love it. I wish that was actually in there. It would have made things better. But yeah, David Bowie, um, you know, my parents had Let's Dance on vinyl. And so uh -huh. I listened to that as a kid. And I didn't really like that album as much. You know, it was a little too polished. For me, the stuff that I really got into was Man Who Sold the World uh, and mm. like the Hunky Dory and um, Ziggy Stardust. I think Ziggy, the, 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 the moment that really fucked me up was seeing Moon Age Daydream live with that guitar solo. And Mick Ronson's like one of my favorite fucking guitar players ever by far he's like a total because i'm a guitar player he's like a complete god to me i had the exact i had the a replication of his fuzz pedal built by the original guy who built it um because cool. i got it for way less than it was actually worth and sold it for way more after i toured with it banged it up but yeah i just was a huge fan of that era and then you know the berlin trilogy I got really into that because I love Robert Fripp and Brian Eno too. So, and it, his, that narrative from 
this person is, he can change in so many different ways, but you know, you, when, just when you think he's, he's reached that limit of, of changing, he does something completely different. Right. I think for me, um, I first became more exposed to David Bowie when I was just a freshman in college. And um, it was because I was interested in like ambient music and I was brought to him by means of Brian Eno myself. And when I heard low for the first time, I was so shocked that this kind of music was being made in the 70s that like it wasn't just experimental in the sense of the sound of the music, but like the very presentation of the album and these abstract floating worlds that he puts together in his songs that are impossible to parse on your first uh on your first listen but become like infinitely more true with like these strange images of women like ripping up carpets and uh cars like crashing in an infinite feedback loop and it's like i was so like puzzled and fascinated by this like strange universe he was able to create that I started like going back through and listening to everything in order um, and uh, seeing his progression from this, uh, you know, folksy, <laughs> folksy, like guitar and piano balladeer to uh, the like dirge of the cross dresser in the face of an AI apocalypse on like the man who sold the world to like the very end of his career. Like everything is just the most like glistening, perfect step as he's like able to harness infinite amounts of culture in these precise and bizarre images. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's hard because, you know, like can a Bowie really exist? Because changeability and impermanence in these cycles, they they go at this like incredibly rapid rate. And this work this sort of this neologism that me and my friends, this sort of like loose internet art collective thing, like it made like New York magazine and became this huge phrase and like Amtrak's using it. And I'm thank God nobody was credited for it because I don't want my name associated with it anymore because it's just fucking rubbish now and I want nothing <laughs> to do with it. But it's just amazing how quickly things change. And, you know, the times were so different. I mean, people had a really stable relationship to linearity and narrative and the way that they structured and organized the world through time. And, and Bowie was really cool because he was kind of like the joker or the jester, you know, who gives people that he shines that light and illuminates like you know, there's a lot of like questions about transgression and taboo. And, you know, he broke a lot of rules. Now, what happens when all of the rules are broken? You have to kind of actually like go back a little bit and start to reevaluate. I'm not saying trad mm -hmm. is the answer, but, you know, you have to start to re reexamine your relationship with certain uh, mediums. That's why I love the whole thing everyone's pushing now about like returning to CDs. I'm all for that. Books, CD, like a hundred percent. Like that's totally my shit right now. So, um, oh yeah. I mean, I'm staring right now at my um my CD collection, which is really manic. I have like every single Madonna CD ever, like next to um a bunch of AKB48 singles, which are, like, the that Demented Idol group from here. And it's, oh, like, wow. that's, like, right next to Daft Punk Homework, which I just, like, found at a used store. And I, you know, am, these, you know, physical objects that people used to have to collect in order to experience any of this art on a regular basis, like, 
it doesn't only like provide like a frame of reference and a sense of like metaphysical narrative for you know the greater history and motion of art around you but it also gives you like a practical means of like understanding like your own experience with it in your own time and you know having everything spat out to you as digits on spotify and like you know being zapped in from the ether it it doesn't lend to having like strong memories of of music or art right yeah and i think it's also because the the way that this content is administered is so artificially socialized in its essence it almost becomes this like new form of mimetic warfare and gameplay and it's interesting because bowie just kind of took that into his own hands you know and and it's to me it's it makes a lot of sense why somebody like that because so many a and r rock bands you know they just end up am radio and then they fizzle out and they make a bunch Mm -hmm. of dud albums and you know the the writings on the wall for them like after two or three records and they've sort of just exhausted everything um but you know i think if you're somebody who's going to take risks I think taking risks is just a good thing, no matter what it it's all, obviously it comes down to context. And I think, you know, making that pivot he made after diamond dogs where he lost Mick Ronson, Mick Ronson went on to play with um, Ian Hunter and of Mott the Hoople. And then he was just like, fuck it. I'm going to play lead guitar now. And he did it. I mean, he's not, he's no Mick Ronson, but you know, he did the job and then he's kind of like, well, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to pivot towards what's going on in America. And uh, I think that, you know, changing his whole band, he changed bands like how many times? Yeah. Uh, over and over again. <laughs> it's and, incredible. And the only, the only like stable person is Carlos Alomar, who's on Young Americans and, um, and Heroes. So it's mm-hmm. like you have this funk guy, this like Puerto Rican guy from New York playing like funk rhythm guitar. And then you pair him and he's just like, so there's always that like, that, rhythmic funk to david bowie there's always like that that groove thing going mm-hmm. on even in the like really ambient weird moments you know it it, it has that cosmic german uh kind of motoric sound uh and and the way he sort of blends all those things together i think creates this like really weird tapestry of um i'm gonna keep you around because you know like he just wasn't attached to anything and it's so weird because now people are so not attached to anything. It's like, you know, it's kind of that thing where if there's a, if there's a million, you know, if there's infinity things and there's zero things. So if there's a million jokers and jesters, there's zero. If everyone's David Bowie, then nobody's David Bowie. Right. So like, what do you have to do to be more Bowie-like given the fact that he kind of, I don't want to say set the stage, but, you know, there's, uh, we live in a world that's more amenable to Bowie now than during his heyday. Absolutely. And I think he actually was a a little aware um, about this complex relationship that was going to 
result from his image. And, you know, speaking of Diamond Dogs, when he did, you know, that song Rebel Rebel, which is a kind of like this like teasing, like kind of cruel song about the people who would end up at his concerts, like um, exercising their, you know, cultural neuroses or whatever, like through his music and like showing up and mascara with running down their face in horrifying clothes. And he realized like kind of that there was something, you know, beautiful and touching there for him. But at the same time, like his own cultural role was role was like about to create like um, a league of, you know, millions of imitations that will never be the exact same thing. And so the question of like, how does one become like more Bowie-like without submitting to the endless pool of jesters, as you put it, it's like, I well, think he had um, talent. <laughs> like, he right, that's that's really the big thing. Good. It's the talent. <laughs> like, I, I, like, there's no. I mean, come on. Like, you, there's no beating around the bush. He was good at a lot of things. He could play like ten different instruments, and he didn't play mm-hmm. them. Like, he wasn't a virtuoso, but he could do it because, you know, it, everything from saxophone to what to Kyoto on uh, here. You know what I mean? Like, he was just interested in playing things not to perfect them but just to gain a different kind of experience and and like pair that with like the vocal ability and the the lyric writing and the sort of creative production i mean everyone's really good at curatorial stuff now because that's the way we experience content that's the way we experience culture it's this diet it's this like total blurring of dialectical images like walter benjamin talks about everything is so Mm -hmm. reproduced that these really disparate things everything from like just anything you can imagine just everything in life looks like a fucking mood board now but that doesn't mean you're the person who created the mood board so the thing the diff i think the big difference between him and this kind of like curatorial mindset that people have now is he was really fucking talented and that really matters. Like there's no substitute for that. Like that, that can't be, that's not something you can like buy or even really learn or, um, or even gain access to uh, regularly. So I mean, how do you, he was was using his talent and his like curatorial abilities to, make every moving like distinct piece of his music is not there unintentionally and even though a lot of it is like libidinal or like he was like you know doing uh bizarre practices to make them happen that like may seem unintentional to other people it was all in the name of this massive project that kind of ultimately summates the extremities of the human experience as well as these deep wells of history that keep swelling up in bizarre shapes and if you don't have like the talent and vision, you end up with something like sloppy and, you know, unartistic. And I just talked about the life of Pablo like two weeks ago, which is very much a curatorial album and like has songs that are just literally other artists songs like slapped and copied and pasted onto the album. And the reason like that record works is because of his like manic desire to like prove something about the, like the instability of his own like career and mindset like he had a a really strong Nietzschean will to like create that image and so it makes sense that so much of it is like gargled noise like being like spat up from somewhere else and like you said like David Bowie just has such a, a clear and piercing vision about the world around him and so much talent and 
a work ethic that yeah. he's able to synthesize uh, all of these insane moving pieces. work ethic. I mean, yes. And, and, and I think Kanye is a really great parallel because first off Kanye West, he started off as a visual artist. So he has some technical ability mm-hmm. that actually backs what he does in, in a different field. But I think the work ethic thing is a really, really big deal to me. It's like Kanye. I know a lot of people shit on Kanye. The only misstep for me was, and it didn't end up being a misstep because I was like, oh, Julia Fox, such a dumb fucking junkie whore. Like, I just, like, <laughs> I know, like, this is so fucking beneath him. Like, he, she's so retarded. Like, I cannot believe he's doing this. And he fucking dumped her ass a month later. Like, it's like the perfect um, rebound while you're spiraling on Instagram over Pete Davidson and your ex-wife. Like, so, so like, even the way he's able to like flip the context, the narrative to be like, all right, this really sucks, man. Like, I'm sorry. Like you, you, you fell off. It's like, what, what? No, no, no. It actually fits this broader thing. Uh, and, and I think that the ability to do that, to pivot like that is really, really difficult. Um, especially, especially now because people, like they don't have a bigger picture. So they either like double down on the thing there, they double down on the curation itself, but they're not like thinking like, well, what's broader than this? Um, mm-hmm. what, what is bigger? Like, how does this fit a, uh, as, as you were saying, like a, a, like a Nietzschean meta framework of just total will and life and greatness and, and, and it could be totally stupid entertainment and mundane, and that's totally fine too. Um, right. And it doesn't even, you don't even have ascribe greatness to it. But I think the reason why paradoxically Bowie is so great is because he's so inauthentic. Yeah. And, and no, he, he's, a, he's a character from the start, and um, he is completely aware of his shuffling persona and uh, the ability for him to assume like different roles that still fit under the like David Bowie canon is so essential. And David Bowie was an early fan of Madonna and her likewise. And it makes total sense because Madonna has also been able to right. exist in pop culture as a complete fallacy, um, despite it, you know, being like a, a generated character that she she made herself. And it makes sense to me that like in my mind the only recent album that kind of uh, hits that really like curatorial and uh, enormous summation of everything going well, on at once has is Mad Max. Work- so. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> work ethic. The, yeah, work, she has an insane work ethic. I it, like it's so hard because I'm such like a on a like not to use one of my fucking phrase words, but I'm such a fucking postmodernist that uh-huh. uh, it, 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 that like I'm just kind of like, well, yeah, nothing really meant. But that's not really true because you have to have a will behind it. Like, mm-hmm. There has to be life behind it and there has to be hard work and there has to be dedication and talent. And there's, there's no overcoming that. I mean, like, yeah, you have to like anything you do, you have to do it to your fingers or your throat bleed basically. And that's, that's great. And, and the, and the results may not look pretty, but um I, I just kind of can't just like sit around and like tweet about writing your book. Like you can't just like be like I'm right. like a writer. You can't just like say it. You have well, to. So many people put yourself do through that pain. now. 
Yeah, well, so, so many. Uh, they, and especially these like political post left people who have like no interest in art or aesthetics. And I was kind of like amenable to it at first. It's like, ah, oh, maybe I could like link up with these guys. And, and I don't, I don't really have a politics. I, there's only like one guy who I actually find interesting and that's Trump. I don't, I don't really think about anybody else. It's just, yeah, I don't, I, I just sort of, my whole thing is like, everybody has their pain. Everybody has their circumstances. Um, if a bomb's being dropped on you, the ideology goes out the window anyway, so, you know, or the ideology has to suit the, the collective cohesive narrative to get you to a place where you're not survive, where you can actually fucking survive and gain some kind of verticality. So I'm not like so particular on that stuff. But the one thing I do notice is somebody who's like peacetime Pax Americana here um, in the in the U.S. is uh, or drone Pax Americana, whatever you want to call it, is that like come on, like, at least have an interest in, like, art, you know, like, a, <laughs> like something, like, come on. Yeah, like, so... there's no will. It, no, like, none. You said this earlier, it's like the the circuit of people who just channel politics into, into the nothing ether. They just are reforming it and, like, reshaping this disgusting gloop. It, it's all a bunch of uh, LCL nothingness. And, like, I the mean, act of them, Bowie, like, trying the to, like... The only political statement he ever really made was he said he was a fan of Benito Mussolini and fascism, so... Yeah, like... he thought that Nazism was interesting, <laughs> yeah. which it is. Like, yeah, and it the is. idea of I him, mean... like, doing, like, um... Like, having, like, seances in his pool while he's just, like, drinking milk and doing cocaine and being, like, Hitler was interesting. It's, like, so good. Yeah. I, I love, like, the Thin White Duke era of him just, like, totally leaning into the idea that uh, politics are completely nothing. It's just about the... How art... Because, I mean, in some ways, David Bowie's kind of like Hitler in a lot of ways. Like, he has such an explosive will and such a... Um, all-consuming control over what he wants the world to look like that he creates like these like fascist pieces of art that are extremely assertive um and he basically is able to fashion an entire like musical scene uh into a push towards something he wants obviously what hitler did was uh bad you know but what hitler (laughs) did was like one of the you know largest accomplishments of a single person on this earth I and mean, of right. course it's an, an evil evil act but it's you know it's something that happened nonetheless yeah i mean you have to at least it's it merits studying I, 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 you know and it all just like show a merit studying i mean it doesn't really matter what you think of one group or another you should at least understand or try to get some sort of historical grasp on how it happened why it happened and um why there are scapegoats and the the weird thing about art is that it's it's kind of an escape from that in a certain way like you, you know there's the whole thing like well what if what if hitler wasn't a failed artist you know he he killed all those jews because he was he was a failed artist basically you know like what happened if like all of that uh torture and uh like evil and all that stuff like that wouldn't have happened had his he just been a more talented painter and like, or like recognized or whatever. And he was not a very good painter, obviously, <laughs> no. you know, he, he actually did kind of suck. Um, so to me, it's kind of, yeah, it's that thing where it's like an introversion, um, but it's also very methodical. 
and it's very planned out. And there's a, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say he's very smart because he did some incredibly, I'm just talking from a purely tactical point of view. He did some incredibly stupid fucking things like attacking mm-hmm. Russia it, that after the Molotov Ribbentrop pact. Like that is like Hitler was low IQ. Like he was not that smart. He had a lot of will and he was very methodical though. And, and you can definitely say that. So um, right, because you don't have to be a genius, uh, you know, war tactician or, or commander in order to uh, harness culture into your own uh, your own means. Um, right. And I think in you know many ways, like Bowie being able to do that with his music, it feels. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, Bowie's not low IQ. Like he's like very yeah, well exactly. read. And... <laughs> yeah, no, Bowie is actually smart. Like <laughs> exactly, uh, uh, and so that's what you get when someone is like smart and they have a work ethic and they have will and they're a curator. What you end up getting are you know, pieces of art, like the two albums that we're going to talk about, like Young Americans. uh, One more thing I have to say. I remember reading something about Bowie, and I forgot, maybe this is Tony Visconti who said this, but Uh he was like, Bowie was so tough, and you see him, and he's this, like, frail little dandy, and he's, like, so thin. He's like, but if you look at his neck, and he had this, like, muscular neck and these muscular legs... And he just had this like strong core that you could just tell, like he there was like a power to him, like physically as well. Like, and he's just said like, for no reason at all. It was like very natural. So yeah, no, I just wanted to throw that out there because I just remembered it. So no, I mean it's it's good to think about. I I am definitely obsessed with his physicality, like the different roles he was able to take, like between like um gaunt like fascist phantom like walking around on a stage smoking and then like a like a lizard made out of sequins when he was doing like Ziggy Stardust to like the like I don't even know how to describe what he looked like in his Black Star moment but like every way that he's able to like reposition his body and his command over his posture and his physical presentation it's just another you know perfect uh, artistic gesture from him. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, let's say uh, let's get into it. I, I yeah. want to talk about these. So, Young Americans is from uh, 1975, and this album kind of documents his time uh, touring America and the America that Bowie witnessed in, in 1974 and 75 is not one that probably most other people had ever seen before, which is that he was rocketing between uh, cities in the back of a stretch limo, high on cocaine for almost, you know, every waking second and just watching uh 
phases of cities pass by as he performs and witnesses young people and then retreats into the limo. And this makeup of, a, of America that he imagines and his own understanding of fame kind of coalesce into this fascinating piece of perfect appropriation that nothing has ever sounded quite like before. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, I think uh, Fascination is probably my favorite song off that album because it sounds like it was made in the, I think it's like a Luther Vandross song too, but that's right. It is, which is, it, it sounds, but it sounds so futuristic. Like it sounds like way, like you almost can't believe that this record was recorded in 1974. Like that. It's just so crazy to me. I mean, the only thing that sort of, parallels it in terms of just like slickness and that sort of like philadelphia gamble and huff style is probably hall and oats like early hall and oats like abandoned luncheonette which i think came out in like 1972 but there's a lot of similar was there any sort of like crossover between those two around that point i i don't know i you know i i read a book about um it's called rebel rebel and it's a, a history of every single david bowie song ever written um, and I read oh, yeah, the first volume. Yeah, I read. It's published on a zero books or whatever. And so um, funny. I know. I thought it was funny too. I I read the first volume that goes up until station to station. And the problem of uh, reading the history of every single song is that they all blend together by the end. So there's like certain like memories I carry out of it, but like my actual like uh, historical knowledge of David Bowie like becomes like pretty weak in places, but. I mean, it just goes to show, like, uh, while he was also channeling stuff like the Velvet Underground and, like, uh, his continual relationship with Iggy Pop, that he was, like, also hitting on, um, you know, this this polite little British twink was, like, hitting on, like, the black soul scene from Philadelphia. Yeah. It, but I think because he had no illusions or pretenses over his, uh, like, these questions of authenticity, he was able to gain access to it in a more respectable way. You know, like fascination is like pure gamble and huff, like Luther Vandross, Philadelphia soul, whatever. Um, And to me, it's, it's so strange because, you know, it's almost like in in this quest for uh, everlasting authenticity and street cred and this quote-unquote lived experience like what is lived experience i mean well lived experience is basically just lived commodity i mean it, it becomes a commodity so here's this guy he comes along i'm a british twink uh i'm gonna make this soul album and it's you know i'm gonna do it with balls and then he gets ultimately you know more respect for doing it that way than like being a wigger or something yeah because it's like i i don't really know like what makes something like a successful appropriation or not and i am 100 percent sure that this record is completely successful in every way and i feel like it's like you said because there's no apologies or like kind of like self-conscious apologies to about the fact that he's you know a white person entering a space of color or something like that. It's yeah. just that he has an earnest, like deep respect for this um, art form and his pre-existing sense of, you know, fallacy and artifice lead him to believe that it doesn't matter like what, 
you know, culture he's, like, lifting from because it's all performance anyway. Right. And and also, I mean, the, the mid-'70s was a very different time, I think, in terms of relationship with culture. I, I, I don't think people, like... All these oh, certainly of, not. <laughs> I, I, all of these Edward Said Orientalist sort of post-colonial theories had not really been. I mean, obviously you have some like Marxist people, but like uh, who's that guy, Franz Fanon or whatever. But he was kind of based actually, so there's no like, uh, you know, you read some of Franz Fanon stuff and you're like, all right, like I actually see where you're coming from here. You're not like completely fucking insane. You actually. You make some decent points. I get it. But so I think that there was just this time where people were less um, they were less aware of stuff like that. And there was mm-hmm. and as culture was more organic and it was less commodity driven, it was less neoliberalized. It wasn't something that was seen as needed to be safeguarded in the same way, um, only because uh there wasn't like there was no financial ties to this notion of authenticity anyway in the same way there is today like the way that they sell gangster rap or something like that as being like all right like this guy is like hood as fuck but he supports like blm or like some like trans movement but he's like a blood really like that (laughs) kind of like really weird to me all right i guess but uh but yeah, it, but you so you're selling authenticity and it just liquefies itself into pure capital. So that's why we get all these questions about cultural appropriation and how to integrate correctly so that like the correct way to integrate is whatever makes whatever makes the fucking people at the top the most money. Like that's like the only exactly time, uh, in, integration is amenable is where it used to just be this natural thing. I mean Jews and blacks got along really, really well in the 1960s, as my grandfather talks about. Then Elijah Muhammad kind of came along and the Nation of Islam happened. And then, you know, the Black Panthers. And I mean, I love the Black Panthers. Me, actually, Amanda Milius loves the Black Panthers, too. They were I do, kinda, too. Yeah, they, they were the only legit and even the conservative uh, author, that guy, David Hor- Horowitz who was like weather underground adjacent was basically like, yeah, every like leftist group in America was always fucking bullshit. But I will say that the black Panthers were legitimate and I still kind of like have respect for them or whatever. Well, yeah. Cause the black Panthers as well are like, um, you know, we talked about a lot on my episode when uh, we spoke about like the Japanese red army and the United red army, like they had a, a sense of, you know, aestheticism behind them and they had yeah. a, like a larger cultural, view so they weren't so focused but leftists on, like, don't have that they have shit no. taste and everything <laughs> like, yeah like not I, since the 70s has there been like one interesting looking leftist no <laughs> like, they all look like shit is, <laughs> yeah and david bowie knew that too which is why he imitated fascism for so much of his imagery it's because it's way way more like libidinal than anything oh, yeah. you would see from some like buttoned up like Soviet or whatever. I don't. I have no time for people who think that that stuff looks interesting. No, I mean, I will say this: uh, the social uh, sort of like the the Moscow kind of avant garde stuff and in the process of that that was slightly interesting to me 
Uh, I do think that there is, it's, I even think so, socialist realism is, there were some interesting movements that came out of that visually. I'm not a big fan of like the brutalist chunks that they threw up everywhere. I, I'm not really much of a fan of that at all. It's just like shit versions of Weimar Bauhaus, which is what Bowie was kind of alluding to uh, the Bauhaus school with the, with his Berlin trilogy. You know what I mean? Like it's it's that sort of like, um, but that's almost like proto-fascist avant-garde in the same way like Italian Afrofuturists did it, like Gia Cometti, and, and which I thought all of that stuff is really, really interesting too. But yeah, I just think so much of it just comes down, at least for me personally, it's like, well, what does it look like? And that sounds superficial, um, maybe. And obviously, like, I don't want anybody genocided and I don't want, you know, like, I don't support anything like violence or like state violence, but it's like nobody has any fucking style. If you can't put style to your movement, then <laughs> yeah. you don't have one. I mean, the Black Panthers had Emery Douglas, who's a great fucking artist doing all of their propaganda. And, you know, it's like you don't have good art like you suck to me. I, I can't. <laughs> like, I just I look at these people, these like leftists or these like post leftists throwing like Apu Apu Jostas on everything. I'm like, this looks like trash. Like, it literally looks like you just took a shit through a fucking computer. Like, have <laughs> some style for fuck's sake. Like, you have no, for no sure. style at all. Like, it's just pathetic sorry i was meanwhile no no i i totally get it and it makes sense because young americans is nothing but style and yeah. like the the idea that he was like witnessing america and like contemplating his own like uh status as an idol and as like a, a famous celebrity and uh, individual on the public stage that he was doing it through like we said like this um you know, total, like, performance of, like, you know, black music at the time, and that he was doing it with a, without any air of irony, and was pulling it off so gracefully, there's these beautiful black and white photos of him in an American flag, this little British boy, and it all makes so much sense, and it's because he had, like, we were speaking earlier, like, that will and that, you know, oblique understanding of things that he was able to translate so well to his music, and also because he has limitless style. Yeah. I, I mean, and I love the way he, I, I think they asked him what the song Young Americans is about, and he was like, it's just about young Americans. Yes, and that song in particular <laughs> is so apocalyptic in the most beautiful way. It's a song about a recently married young couple who suddenly realize yeah. that this is what is going to be the rest of their lives for them and it has this total edge of like bright like brightly lit like middle american horror to it and the like the jubilant choir and the upbeat little song and like piano spreads um as he's just as like outlining the slow motion death of these two like beautiful young people is so so good to me yeah, the lyrics are great because he's kind of recounting this. Yeah, it's like almost like this tragic post-Fordist horror story of, of what's what's America's future, which is basically one where um, uh, everything becomes sanitized and suburbanized and McDonaldized and that. Um, but the music is so like cultural and flavorful and like yes and, and so he's juxtaposing this really sort of mundane 
boring, uh, typical fucking American horror story of just total mundanity with these like very, you know, with soul singers and these crazy arrangements. And, and that creates a certain kind of tension. And I think um, complexity and juxtaposition is really, really important. And because he knew how to take different elements and blend them together, he can create this sort of new language or this sense of confusion. And I think people need to be confused. They're not confused enough. Like you should actually make things harder to understand. Like, yeah, because the process of having to, you know, re-listen to this over and over again, like pick through the images with the, um, the, the sound of the music as well, like having to do that over and over again and really think about it, like leads you to a, a greater artistic practice of like trying to get a song. Right. It's no, I it, just, I just, I love like the, the work of having to go through a Bowie song. And I mean, Young Americans is probably like one of his most like literal albums, which makes sense for him doing a USA themed record. Like, of course it would be like literal and obvious, but like, yeah. Um, nonetheless, like the tone and the specific like imagery that he decides upon of them, like fucking on the grass and like getting out of the car together and everything, especially in the title track, it's like it's it's blatant and clear but like there's so many different like emotional intonations that come off of it that you can only really access after forcing yourself to listen to it and read through the lyrics over and over again yeah i actually haven't read any of the lyrics i just kind oh, of interesting uh, like I, I just kind of like went through i just kind of pick up what i hear in the songs which sounds mm-hmm. kind of stupid but no not at all and and so like I know the lyrics to Young Americans because I've sang it so many times. You, you know what I mean? Like I actually haven't read through the lyrics of this album, <laughs> which which sounds kind of stupid. But no, it doesn't. I mean, no one really sits around and like reads liner notes or anything. But um, it's a it's a <laughs> you, practice you know, that my friend. You know what Bowie said about Young Americans? He said it's he the say? phoniest R and B I've ever heard. Right, which makes it the truest <laughs> makes possible. It, yeah, well, that's what makes it real. <laughs> and, yeah. he, and, and nobody could tell if he's being serious or not when he said that. Of course. And I mean, I, I picked up on the practice of reading liner notes from my friend Emily in college who uh, introduced me to the Smiths. And the first time we listened to the, the Queen is Dead together, we uh, sat with our iPhones out while it played on YouTube and like, read through all the lyrics like page oh, by page. God. Yeah, well, <laughs> well I read all Morrissey's lyrics because I exactly. fucking love Morrissey and it just uh I've been completely obsessed with uh Shoplifters of the World again. I've been just listening to that song over and over. Yeah, no, I mean Morrissey is like Bowie is someone who has a, such a strong knack for these like visceral and like um kind of shimmering ideas and visuals that he like assigns to the music that like i i really get a kick out of like sitting and like trying to pick through the the irony and the phoniness of uh young americans and like seeing the precise like mechanisms he he chooses to create this like fake america from the windows of the limousine right and and it was sort of speaking i think to 
because you know in in the uk there was a, a really strong kind of like civic identity and you saw it in the kinks when they did like village green preservation society like they were definitely like like anglo like anglos are very you know for better or for worse they're very uh colonialistic uh they're super proud uh if there's racism that exists anywhere in the world it's probably the uk um and, and and it's just so kind of strange that he kind of sees this place like america is like five dimensional it's it to me america i love america so much because as an idea because it's so out of the box like you know it may be like the fourth at least culturally uh, you know it, it because it's so all over the place it may be like the four the four horsemen of the apocalypse in a certain way mm -hmm. for culture but i mean you have to just respect from the very beginning like the bill of rights nobody nobody had ever done anything like that and so america is just like bogerard's writing on america is to me the best ever i don't think anybody has summarized and it's kind of funny coming from like a european background well, Brit, honestly, the UK isn't really Europe, though. It's kind of its own thing. Yeah, um, its own little island. Yeah, so, but I do, I, like, it does make sense that these people will be looking at America and being like, it's so phony, I can just go here and either equate it to Disneyland or make a soul record and tell everybody this is the phoniest R&B I've ever heard, even though I'm the guy who made it and totally stand by it at the same time you know yeah. so i i think america like post post vietnam there was definitely this air of the and then obviously it was accelerated in the 1980s by everything that had been going on there like everything was just this like and the 80s were great for america you know like they they really were but the 70s still there was like that it is so murky and weird and bizarre, especially. Yeah, it's like here. very brown and like yeah. hazy. All the there's colors like a, too. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's like some like my my temporal understanding of like the seventies is like kind of like this like bleary, unfocused like sea of like brown and like dark yellow. Yeah, that's well, like always the lens I see it through, and like it's it, that like texture like is like the smoke of this record, like the the sound of it, and like those. But like, it's big, warm too because guitars. those are it's warm, those, yeah. But but those are warm colors, and they always remind yeah. me of like autumn tapestry, and that's why autumn colors I think were sort of the official colors of the nineteen seventies, um, because there there is this weird warmth to it. Uh, it's it's very autumnal. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's like this weird, dark, uh, nocturnal pile of fucking leaves everywhere and smoke and haze and cocaine. And like, uh, at the same time, you know, people were trying to get their lives back on track and you, you know, people were like really into baking apple pies and stuff. It's like, it's like very like degenerate and very wholesome at the same time. There's something carpets like so mirrors. Yeah, carpets and yeah, exactly. So there's like something like comforting and soothing, but it's also like uh 
it's also kind of yeah it's like it's almost like pure addiction in every incarnation or something so i think that like the 70s are really addictive i mean me and an ex-girlfriend she's like a fashion photographer now we used to always say like our decade we're not like retro people kind of i mean i've always been into like 70s stuff we're always like we're so 70s like there's something like very 70s about our taste and everything like i Mm. still dress really 70s now and i'm not like a retro person at all i just like love the way 70s shit looks you know so um, yeah totally i feel like a lot of this um kind of comes like the the david bowie doing like his phony impression and like the actuality of it and all of this kind of like comes to a head on the last song of the record which is probably the most famous that being fame uh, yeah. which has that genius like lick and that kind of groove in it that you said is like very bowie-esque and i just love what he's doing on the very last gasp of this record after he's pictured america through this uh through the teflon and then he emerges out of it to kind of uh it's so hard to explain but it's like he understands that he's manifesting his like fame and cultural power in this like kind of demonic way but he's not condemning himself either do you know what i mean yeah Uh, well when you said like what do you like about me and you asked like so how do you know me and your show's called i'm so famous um it's (laughs) it's it's exactly it's really really weird because so you're setting yourself up for a lot of criticism and hate by doing that right off the bat. And really it's, it's what is your threshold? Like, because you will eventually get somewhere if you can actually put up with the criticism, Uh, you know, and, but at the same time, it's like, you could be this total like modest person. And if you're doing anything publicly or ambitious at all and you have your voice on things and you have an opinion or a say like they're gonna ascribe that to you anyway i mean like and then you could say well no 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 i'm not this person but that it doesn't even matter no yeah because i mean I call my show I'm So Popular because I talk to different people every week and because I like the provocation of it, right? Like, exactly what you said, which is that I know that what I'm saying is worthwhile and I know that my mission is uh, is something that I believe fully in and I uh, believe that I deserve <laughs> success. And so the provocation of that and the um, understanding that I view myself that way definitely pisses people off without any question of a doubt. And I think is Bowie that a gay also... thing though? Uh, that's what I'm wondering because I mean it definitely is a little bit of a gay thing, and this is something that gets brought up on thought topics a lot, which is um how gay men will see another gay man and they said that that could be me. I could do what he's doing better. Everyone thinks that really? uh, when they when a gay man sees another gay man because it's a constant competition. So. Um, gay people will look at another gay person doing literally anything and just say, I could be doing that. So me saying <laughs> I'm so popular is like, a, it's like the, the evil eye. What's the, what's the talisman that people wear to protect from the evil eye? Is it the, the, the golden pepper? I like a golden pepper because that's very, uh, that's very Bowie, but it's something else. Uh, <laughs> evil eye protection. I'm I looking don't... this up right now. I, I, I forget, actually. Oh, okay. So, 
It is called a oh a Nazar N A Z A R. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm so popular as a Nazar to just uh you know not let anyone even try to penetrate what I know to be true. But yeah, like, in the same way, like David Bowie knows he's famous. He knows what he's doing is evil. He knows that there's like a, a demonic and uh, cursed edge to him wielding his cultural capital in, in this way to produce these bizarre simulacrums of America, but the swaggering nature of the song and his, like, kind of, like, teasing, uh, like, screaming about it is just so delicious to me. But he's also, it's not really evil because, well, A, evil isn't actually real. It's, evil is the void itself. You face evil when you face nothingness, kind of like, you know, in a lot of ways, Marquis de Sade was so close to God because he could ex- he experienced God's lack, and that actually brings you closer to some sort of cosmic battle that that puts you closer to proximity to whatever that that thing is. And, and so I, I just you, you know the whole fame thing is really really weird to me because Bowie was massive. Like you're selling out stadiums, and internet fame is. I, I feel like all of us. And sometimes like this is my criticism is that we all have to put this stuff in perspective. Like, yeah, we have like a few thousand followers or somebody and like, oh yeah, like I make a living off podcasting now. It's great. <laughs> like, but like, I'm, maybe I just say this because I've been in bands that have like sold out tons of places in like Europe in the past. And like, I was just a lead guitar player. So nobody remembers me at all. And I was just like in the background, I'd play my guitar solo for like a few bars and I just go back to the background. Um, I just kind of feel like, how do you get right sized? Because Bowie is like so massive. Like people say like Kanye's Mm -hmm. or Bowie had like a big ego or something like that. It's like, well, I mean, if you, I just, I'll never forget that the Bowie live concert and just Moon Age Daydream and the way he actually made women in the front, it was like a liturgy. Like there's something yeah. like so uh, transcendental about that that I feel like very few artists can harness. And mm-hmm. and this is kind of why I'm I've been I like Ro- uh, Robert Rauschenberg and, and Jasper Johns and their kind of like play on Americana. And to recreate these American flags through uh, a conceptual art framework is basically it's like refusing transcendence because they're like, we're not that great. We're just artists. So they so they played into this whole thing of like, let's demystify things a little bit. And, and in, a, in a sense, like Bowie kind of did that to himself because he's like, you know, it's, it's funny because you look at the Internet and there's all these like esoteric movements popping up with like anime girl avatars and like weird esoteric like uh grooming things and all of this stuff and eventually that stuff kind of wears out and you kind of have to go mask off and do something real and and i think a little bit of of demystification is healthy and and so in some ways it's like by him going to America and being like mask off, like full blown simulacrum uh, cosplay of this thing. I'm totally inauthentic. Uh, there's something 
like it's like a pro it's like a profanation and i think that that's really i think that's healthy i you can't keep that shit up forever you know like you cannot be ziggy stardust forever like it just doesn't fucking work nobody's gonna believe you and he pivoted at the right time like you know he saw the writing on the wall and i think so much of art is and and where to course correct is like do you see the writing on the wall like are you going to pretend you're an anime girl on the internet forever? You know, it, it, like, and, and so I, I think that might be some of it too. I, I'm just working that out of my head. No, I, I think you got it exactly right. Like the demystification is just so, it's so powerful to see him do it. Um, and I mean, his career was quite young at this point and he still kind of had like the foresight around his own image um, to start kind of uh, breaking it into pieces. And I think that on Heroes, that's kind of where it reaches yeah. the critical mass point. Well, Heroes was almost like, Lowe had a very, very personal lyric. So he was kind of like experimenting with his German uh, detached form. He was in Berlin with, with Iggy Pop and they were all strung out and they were, you know, in the land of Bauhaus and all these kind of like um, sort of detached, it, but it, Everything is so ambient. The lyrics are so ambient. The way the album just progressively gets weirder and weirder as it goes along, uh, and until the last song, where the where the vocals actually kick back in. And and I mean, most of the second half of that record, he's just kind of like, "All right, Brian, you know, you go do your thing now." And it's just totally weird and bizarre. And um, I I I think that's what makes it so good. Yeah, the Berlin trilogy is probably like my one of my biggest like entry points into, into Bowie and like kind of remains like the the nucleus that I orbit around when it comes to him like that and probably like station to station as well. But yeah. like Heroes is, is like unlike anything else. Like the first half of this record and the the vocal tracks, all of them are kind of like these bizarre expansions on the kind of rock music that you might imagine from that time period like they, they feel very familiar and the kind of grandiose like riffs on them and the stadium power of those songs uh it, it feels like both like an extension and kind of like a almost like satire or parody of the sound and then it all like reappears and unfolds and, and shatters on the second half with the brian eno stuff well it's actually funny because Robert Fripp wasn't the first choice for lead guitar on that album. He was actually trying to get Michael Rother of Noi, which was the motoric Krautrock band. And so you start to see the influence of that stuff really come in. Uh, 
And, you know, he was obviously very fond of Robert Fripp, but that was kind of Eno's partner. And, and Eno kind of brought him along, but he was like, no, I actually want like the ultra Krautrock person. And, and so you start to see like the motoric influence come in and, and it's just, I don't know. There's something so weird about it. Cause yeah, the riffs are really big, but if you listen to Noy in, in La Dusseldorf, it's like epic, you know, it's, it's almost like this ambient music, but it also has this like Bruce Springsteen like, yeah, I was thinking that too. thing to it. And it's like really weird how like grandiose and stadium rock esque it sounds, even though it's like a simple drum pattern or drum machine with like these synthesizers. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's really, really weird how that, how it fills out so much and how it just keeps progressing. And, and, and I think, I think that's, what's interesting about it. Yeah, no, for sure. Like the, that sort of grasping towards like the big stadium power has always actually existed in like the quiet, like ambient music. And I've never thought about it that way. It, it, it puts so much together. And um, one of my favorite things about heroes as an album in total is the cover, which oh, yeah. I just am Who's so the possessed by. Yeah. The photographer, ugh, I forget the name. Cause I can't, Me too. <laughs> I, I can't pronounce, but also did the idiot. Yeah, great photographer. Um, yeah, the cover's amazing, too. And uh, Oh, it was by uh, Sukita Masayoshi. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And she, uh, he actually did a lot of, like, fashion stuff, too. I, I'm familiar, I just can't pronounce Japanese at all. And, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, no, it's um, it's really amazing just yeah, to see. It's, it's um, like, in the same way that these are, like, stadium stadium power ballads or something like that i don't know like the precise verbiage to, to say it right but like it's those huge songs and it's him with those hands in a, yeah. an impossible gesture like laura palmer doing the meanwhile pose and as he looks like distantly in black and white like the idea that this record was just owned by hundreds of thousands of people on vinyl and it was like sitting around their house like with david bowie and those like bizarre occultist hands staring into something menacing just beyond as they listen to songs like heroes and then that cursed instrumental backside it's like i just can't believe that like this was like what was going on in culture at the time it was so cool well it's also just so haunted because i mean it, like germany post-world war ii was was suffering tremendously almost like what happened after world war one when they got completely crushed by the british like america had stationed there and you had the two different factions between the stalinist east east germany and the in the wall and this sort of ghosts of nazism and also the dark cold industrial setting and i think that plays a huge part on what you do and what you make i mean I really do think geography still matters. Like people like to say everything is on the internet now. It's like, yeah, but you're still behind the computer somewhere. Like, so you, so you, you have to make that count, which is why I'm so against living in a place like New York where it's just pure. Um, it's a people museum. It's a people right. museum and nothing actually gets made there. And LA used to be a place where things were made and it's not anymore. 
uh, also. So again, it, it's kind of this like endless circle jerk of artistic curatorial uh, expertise. And it, it creates its own sort of like uh, curator class where people are just um, pastiching things together, but they're not actually making anything. And right. people say podcasting is not making things, but if you put effort into it, like I make a lot of the music for my podcast. Like I do all the yeah, cover I do as well. I do all my interludes and everything yeah. too. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I understand. Yeah, like, you work very, very hard. <laughs> like, and, and, and but, pe but people can tell, you know, like people know if you're creating that Gestamp Kunst work, which is a big influence on Bowie during that period that, is the total art that comes from Wagner and was used through the Bauhaus movement uh, of the 1930s in, in Weimar. And, and I think that that's a beautiful, uh, the totalization of all forms. I think if you can take a medium like podcasting, like people get so mad when you say podcasting is legitimate. Well, let's put it this way. The oral tradition has been completely fucking destroyed and it has, has it's had no place in the way we interact with language and text for at least 50 fucking years. I mean, obviously you have your one-off radio stars like Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh or whoever, but like mm -hmm. oral systems that were developed like equivalently to textual ones. And we had completely lost that. It's like, the fucking burning of the library of Alexandria, but for all of humanity. <laughs> yes, we absolutely. Had, we had moved to technical images, reproduced images, uh, the internet, staring at things. The fact that we have to look at something in order to get something out of it. And, the, and as music becomes more denarrative, like, narrativized, which is why, like, I love, I listen to so much Bob Dylan because I just, I love the lyrics so much. Um, this is kind of like our return to redeveloping oral systems that have been lost. And and I just say the I think it's great. Like I, I don't understand what's wrong with that. I mean, most of customs and histories and stories were passed down that way anyway. And now we get to yeah. record them and share them. Like I don't. I don't understand what's bad about that. Like, could somebody tell me why that's worse than anything else you could possibly do? Yeah, why, why it's so horrible to listen to people do it. And I mean, when I think about the locality of heroes and, um, you know, parts of the Berlin trilogy, like the imagery of uh, like Tony Visconti, like making out with his, uh, his uh, mistress at the time and, and, David Bowie watching from the window and seeing yeah. that image as they like are pressed against so the Berlin good. Wall, where just endless history is uh, reaching a, a culmination point. And at one point in Station to Station, he writes, "The European canon is here." And when we finally get to the Berlin trilogy, and it's like he's pulling on like th this like sense of missiles in the air and like of political turmoil like reaching its final point and human beings merely interacting with each other and he's recording in totally dilapidated empty theaters in the city all of that like leaks into the the sound on this record yeah and you kind of get a sense of that in like Vim Wenders movies like uh 
And I, I see it, it's, it's really sort of interesting. And you had the RAF going at the time and like Bader Meinhof gang and some of those kind of like, actually like a little bit more interesting uh, uh, leftist movements. To me, leftism, the only thing that I find actually interesting is Italian autonomism, which I still love to this day. And I, I think we should fully bring that back, I think. It's funny because Giorgio Agamben is this like Italian autonomous Marxist philosopher who like is probably the biggest critical thinker against COVID stuff. And now like all these right wingers, like he's so based, but it's just like how he's always been basically. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I, I find it, yeah, really, really interesting that you had that like it, the, the ghosts and the drugs and the black and white imagery and the way that it captures it so well because so much of like that kraut rock um music like ashraw and Kluster, it's very like wholesome and cute even Kraftwerk, which he dedicated um quite a bit of this album quite a bit of out. this album to Kraftwerk and er, Ed, edgar freese like it was it's still very germanic and warm and wholesome but this was almost kind of like, uh, like there really wasn't any like dark because it's almost like proto-industrial music. Mm -hmm. No, totally. And and Kraftwerk were kind of industrial, but it's still cute and like wholesome. Like this is actually like dark Bauhaus. Um, they call it proto-punk or something, but it really is like the the early it's really an early industrial album. Like it's total industrial. Like there's no, like everything from the sounds they use to the, like, just like the tonal shades and like Robert Fripp's like Frippertronic guitars. And they don't let him like do any of his King Crimson shit on it really. So he's not like shredding super hard. It's just all very sort of murky and black yeah. and white. I when I think of the title track, um, you know, the the black and white and like the like the the smoky kind of like mist of this record, um, I, something that's a kind of a, a key component is that the song "Heroes" is in quotation marks, which I think about endlessly, yeah. <laughs> because this song, this very quite long and uh, very romantic on the surface of a. Uh, two people imagining that they can overcome all of this like Berlin sludge around them and all of this like uh you know communist strife and political terror around them they they imagine you know that they, they can, can uh, be, fictionalize be themselves as heroes yeah yeah but, but, but it's, it's also that, so, yeah so it's self-aware enough to to put that moment of inscription down and this is why i think the, the kind of linguistic studies of Martin Heidegger, which obviously had a huge influence on uh, Germany at that time because, you know, he was a Nazi. <laughs> I love Heidegger. Uh, he's probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite thinkers of all time. But the kind of understanding of poetry and language and his essays on metaphysics, they really shape the way we can use language to say a certain thing. So quotations in that context, there's something incredibly deep about that. And a friend of mine made this list called the retard list where he said retards, which is like the good people. And then retards is in quotation, which is like uh -huh. the bad. And he was like a, 
he's a student of Jacques Derrida's. Uh, and so I, I found it to be a really interesting thing that you brought that up because I've been thinking of quotations a lot too. Like it's a, it's, it's a self-awareness of the fact that you're the one autobiographizing something. It's almost like everything, especially nowadays, becomes autobiographical. But if your mm -hmm. name is on an album cover, that's an autobiography right there. Like the, So to inscribe the quotation marks is basically like, yeah, sure, we can be heroes. So again, it's that sort of... Uh, it's it's that kind of like fatalism, like it, it, it. The whole album is so dark; it just feels like a total extinction. Yeah, it totally does, and that especially becomes too with like VT Schneider. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. V two. Yeah, V two. Right, because that this uses all of those like familiar like David Bowie like funk you know kind of uh, grooves or or what have you, and it, it's all of the pieces that you've kind of come to expect from him over the the many albums that had taken him to reach this point. Um, but it's them like slowly getting like ripped apart into the black and white void. And this idea of him as a hero through the sounds he's made and like through like the fame on young Americans and all of it um, just slowly vanishes into the vortex. Yeah. And, and it's funny because yeah, it's like even Heroes. So you put Heroes as the last song on the first side, and then the album resolves with um, this just really weird, murky blend. And again, it's it kind of to bring into show tunes, it's the idea that on a commercial album, you would put V2 Schneider as, tr as track one on side two, and it'd be mm -hmm. three minutes long. Uh, sense of doubt and then you have new calm uh which is the fourth track and that's like and the last tracks were like this is all sort of like eno's input so the fact that you could have four basically near instrumental songs on the last side of an album and then you have the secret life of arabia which is you know kind of gets back to that like vocal style of the first side and, and kind of resolves it and ties it back together because they can't just like, in some ways I would have prefer that just to come after blackout and, and mm -hmm. it just, and it doesn't resolve itself at all. Like that's like the ultimate statement. If you just end on uh, with just like total ambient instrumental dark hell mess and Christian F used, uh, used V2 Schneider in in that film a lot too like there's there's something so yeah there's it, there's just such like a, a a void like it's like the darkest black you could possibly find with like shit it's almost like that scene in in neon genesis evangelion where it, you know it starts to resolve in, in the final impact and, and yeah it's very third impact for sure a very third terminal third dogma in, yeah 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 third, yeah third impact no it, it's it, so human instrumentality project you're so right it, it will also the the it has a lot of schopenhauer themes throughout the lyrics too and schopenhauer was a big influence on neon genesis of evangelion and it's almost like the the philosophical themes are basically like hegel 
is like the dad who's trying to bring about the human instrumentality project via the third impact, which is basically like uh, the the platonic one world communist Borg bug life bullshit that we're seeing now versus like Schopenhauer, which is like uh, almost like the the creational nihilism. And, you know, it's people say nihilism is a bad thing, but if you're making something out of it, that's not actually nihilism because that's not an act of evil because you've actually done something. Right. So no, exactly. I, it's not I, it's not evil to, you know, to be nihilist. Exactly. You know, because the act of creating an art of, of nihilism is actually a, a refute of the philosophy itself. And exactly. You know, I, I completely agree that like the soupy instrumentals and like the the total like LCL, like post third impact world of uh of the back half, I, I also have like the urge to want it to end there. But I love that it ends on that vocal that vocal yeah. track where he just is like summoning up these like ancient like Arabian narratives and like dumb stories that have been passed down like time after time, like these like legends of heroes. Um and all of it seems like kind of um like farcical and um you know anti-real after he's done the process of exercising out all of uh these like stadium rock impulses and ironing them into like the japanese forest of like of the instrumental side i and in every single one of those tracks including on the cover everything is uh in in quotations so there's there's that understanding of of non-reality that i think you know, language and sound is so important. And again, this is good to get back to, to podcasting. Like you don't have to be a great talker to have a good pot. I mean, I'm a shit talker. I'm not even good. Oh, at that's talking. not true at all. <laughs> not at all. You're I, I so really, articulate. It blows me away. I, and so I find it to be really funny that again, like just to, to, also have those things in quotations all those titles have everything in quotations have it resolved that way um with yeah like that basically like hilarious weird and it it kind of reminds me of of christmas with mr lawrence in the and that's a really funny movie just because it's a total like uh homo like homoerotic without the eroticism it's just like pure gay eros but nothing sexual happens between yes uh, it's like the the eroticism of formalities yeah it's like pre-eroticism uh and i i actually find that to be well eros there needs to be i really struggle with this because i know like i do understand like porn and i'm not anti-porn or anything and i i get like the argument for like total profanation especially now because everything's so neutered and prude like we do need orgies and carnivals and jubilees because that might bring us together and then i also wonder like well eros entails some kind of mystique right like it, it can't be all out in the open all the time so it's just it's really weird but at the same time it's like showgirls just puts it all out there and it put it out yes. there and it like so you could be watching a fucking i remember being a kid and being fascinated with that show 
and I didn't even like girls back then. I didn't know what I liked, <laughs> but I just remember hearing about it constantly and being like, I have to see this because people say it's bad. And they're playing it right across from like Waterworld and The Lion King. Like I remember like watching like Waterworld or something like that and going in there and they had like show like showgirls playing right across. And it's that context that sets up that just draws you in. And it's funny how like, so like there's really no one way, right way to do anything. You know what I mean? Like everything mm-hmm. is so, it, it needs its context. And and you have to be aware of its context because there's really no one size fits all. Like there's sometimes for like big volcanic orgies on uh, commercial theaters to happen, you know, next to like children's movies. And then sometimes there's, uh, there's more kind of, you know, you have to be, there's like uh, Mr. Lawrence or whatever. So, you know, there's no, there's no one way, but yeah, no, it's all interesting. It's good to think about. Yeah. It all, it all merges together in the, in the overwhelming face of that instrumental side on heroes, it all melts it into LCL and, uh, we're left with um, a bunch of bizarre, unwieldy, inauthentic narratives that we have to piece together for culture. I didn't like Why not? I like looking at him, man. Everybody like looking at him. Let me feel like a hooker. You are, 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 you We're Yeah, let's talk about Showgirls. Okay, so I've got Showgirls <laughs> on, and, and her friend is about to get raped, raped. by the, the guy who looks like um, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh my god, yeah. No, um, where to begin with Showgirls? Um, th- th- this is a movie that I have wanted to talk about for a very long time. And um, I think right when I was starting my show, it was still misunderstood as a uh, bad but good movie. Like, it's so good, it's bad. And I've I've never really liked that approach to film viewing because any mm-hmm. movie that's, quote, so bad, it's good, unquote, is usually a movie that has a director or screenwriter or cast um, earnestly exercising their hearts to such a degree that it comes off as too extreme and too unpalatable for uh, most people to watch. And so I think now people are, are starting to realize that that's not the case with this movie. And it, it merely is kind of um, a perfect, like, compact disc of uh, the sexual urges at the time it was released. Um, and in thinking about, you know, David Bowie's imagination of fame and his imagination of America and the vortex of his instrumental music on Heroes, I find that Showgirls 
actually manages to emerge from that like pool like really naturally somehow yeah it, actually that's a great pairing because uh showgirls is a movie you can have on in the background um so and it is i think paul verhoeven does two things very very well he does nihilism and maximalism i very mean true. you look at you look at like even his earlier movies like flesh and blood that is which was a big uh had a huge impact on berserk rest in peace um that was like that movie have you seen that i have yeah it's incredible yeah it is it, it, it's so amoral like it's every good per the word it's so tr it because it's a tragedy because we don't have tragedies anymore because we live in this world where morality and empathy has to be asserted 24 seven. But the only reason we have to assert this cult of morality and authenticity is because we don't live in a fucking proper society anymore. We wouldn't be talking about empathy or morals if we actually had real subject object relations. And so I think it's perfect to do things that are completely free of morality. And unfortunately, you have the kind of like, uh, you know, now every fucking socialist is a trad calf and they're going to like yeah. tell you, you can't be a degenerate. You have to be a good moral this and that. And all art has to be you can't show and uh, sex is bad and, and gay people are bad. And, you know, let's like rant about trans people. all day. It's just so fucking pathetic. And it's just sounds weak to me like stay in your lane shut the fuck up kind of thing so sorry that was a rant but no no it's it's very important because the the trad calf uh i can't deal with fucking catholics on the internet anymore and i'm yeah. i'm i'm calling a ceasefire i i want them to <laughs> shut the fuck up i can't take any more of it and i can't take any more gay scolding about slutty gay people I can't take anyone who lives a completely unsexed and pulverized existence where they sit from some unknowable corner of the internet and fret about seed oils and then scold you for being a whore. Like, yeah, if, and, and I, you can't no. bath either, and you, you can never come, and it's all about semen retention. Uh, that makes you powerful? Like what no it I, I just don't yeah <laughs> it's just insane to me so yeah because this movie I, is it, like david bowie's like orgasmic uh you know abandonment of all nuance and explosion into uh the realm of of stereotype and um you know artifice showgirls is also an equal like geyser of cum in the way that would just obliterate all trad cats if they honestly <laughs> had to sit through all of it. Like acidic semen would burn them away. Like uh, in you the readers of to. the lost Ark. That's, yeah. uh, that's all I want to do is offend them now. <laughs> Cause they're so fucking annoying. It's exactly, it's crazy. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, but yeah, yeah the more I had to do a trad cast, like the more that I like want to like do JRPG, like kill God. And then, uh, when he dies, his body is going to burst into uh, floods of semen that will burn away all the sex-negative little faggots that are pissing and complaining on the internet. Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, I'm still kind of a, I, I would say a Protestant. Uh, 
and they say, well, you're just an atheist. And I'm like, so? <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, that, if that's what you're going to reduce it to, then that's your opinion. But you, uh, you seem to be very sure of what you think I should be viewing and doing and, and how I should interpret these things that are wholly unknowable. And honestly, you're just using God's name in vain by typing it on the internet. So like, why don't you just shut up? Like, uh, yeah, no, it's funny. I've been really thinking about that a lot too, about sexual repression. And, and I think sexual repression is, is ultimately, uh, done for the sake of performance because they want you to optimize yourself for, um, to be a good little like neoliberal productive member of quote unquote like internet society or your like community or so you know your hr department you're in good standing with them and they don't want you to do anything uh that liberates you from that structure because it's all just capital in the end and like sex and love and actually you know, sex and love and Eros is, is kind of like, like love is kind of communism in a weird way. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the losing of one and the other. And I think yeah. the other is something that, that we've lost in, in today's world. Like we don't, we don't consider the other in the same way. We can't look at the other. Like, I, I think one of the more interesting things to me is like, what is other about, you know, I read this weird article about showgirls where they're saying like, it's a camp classic, but we're calling it out. It's like, you know, for exposing misogyny within Hollywood. Oh my God. It, uh, like I, I read this whole <laughs> thing and, and it was actually written fairly recently. And did, have you seen the documentary? Uh, no, I was reading it? about it and it seems interesting, but I haven't watched it. I think it's very empowering. <laughs> I mean, uh I don't understand in what way Nomi seems like she's uh, disenfranchised or whatever. You know, she's not like AOC talking about how men just want to sleep with her and oh, poor me. She's actually, you know, she's actually achieving something. And yeah, she's totally amoral. But isn't that the point? It's a fucking movie. You're 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 showing something I, I just don't understand. It's totally weird to me. Well, to me, Showgirls is a virtually a perfect film for not only kind of um, fully committing in a really visceral and impactful way to absolute hedonistic sex showcase. And a lot of it well, is... Well, Jacques just... Rivette loves Showgirls. Of course. Yeah, I, I was <laughs> reading about that. And, like, of course he does. Like, yeah, uh, this movie is an absolute like exorcism of all of like the the sexual impulses that were uh reaching like a climax in the mid 90s and like you said earlier the fact that this was an NC17 movie that was like wide released and like people could go see this um and that the sex in it is like weird and uncomfortable and like uh women just like thrashing around and like doing gymnastics it's like this actually like really is truth like 
in the same yeah. way that like David Bowie's like uh like wrong imagination of America is actually true for it being <laughs> kind of like a, a facsimile, like this is also true. Like yeah. obviously no one has sex like Nomi does when she just is like having a seizure and thrashing around. But when you see it happening, it's like this is this is the the sensual world being like manifested in in film. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of weird because I've been watching Euphoria lately, and I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen that. Um, I haven't yet, but I, I'm I'm planning on starting because it seems like I have to at this point. I, I mean, it. I kind of really like it, only because the on one hand, I think it fails because it's showing Gen Z like they're completely engaged. So it shows like it's basically showing it makes Gen Z kids and these like new children seem like the projection that they give on the Internet. So they're having mm-hmm. tons of sex and doing tons of drugs, like ODing it. And they're all on the dance floor and partying and fucking and like they're totally just living in the moment. But they're really not because they're it's. It's so strange because it's this weird fantasia of what a Gen Z person projects their life to be like through the filters and mystique of Instagram grids, but no kid is living this way. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the numbers. I I wrote that whole thing on Substack and I don't really like writing on Substack, but about sexual repression and I mean, the, we are living in easily the most repressive time in human history. Mm-hmm. So it, it's so strange that this show is such a huge hit because it's not reflective of the moment at all. Like it's reflective of the narcissistic refraction of the way we perceive the moment through the portrayal of others on the internet, but it's, there's no truth to it because this this is not what's going on right now. No, it's like the fantasy of what's going on. It's like, it's like the same way that like showgirls is like not like reality, but it's like the, um, like the sensual fantasy that we're all kind of exposed to. And um, this movie that basically just follows um, a, uh, a girl uh, like a girl, basically, ju- just a girl who arrives in Las Vegas with dreams of becoming a showgirl. Um, her rise from being a stripper to um, being the headliner in a in a big act. Um, all of it is like this, like loose, like plastic fantasia. And the way that the characters have uh, dialogue that seems like ripped out of like a David Lynch script or something, and um, impossible things keep happening the more absurd and theatrical it gets, like the more like kind of a uh, strikingly horrifying I found it. And I like yeah. that you kept mentioning that it's like something that you can leave on and you like don't have to pay attention to because it's so like sensual and like so sensory based that like you don't have to pay attention for any of this movie and it just kind of happens rapidly in front of you. And it, I mean, does it really matter that because if we read it as a satire, does it really matter that Elizabeth Barkley is like the Berkeley or whatever is like the worst actress ever? No, it's even better for it. Yeah, it's even better. It's like she has great tits and she's a horrible actress. That's that's fine. <laughs> like we're not. What are we? 
So I actually think I think people mistake intention, but I think a lot of like really good artists and very intentional artists, like they've thought about this. Like, look, Paul Verhoeven wasn't going to blow a $45 million budget if he didn't have like, if he didn't know what he was doing. And even like his other movies, like, they're so campy, but they're so intentional. Like everything, you can tell he's a fucking psychopath, but he's very, very intentional. Yeah, and, because and camp is only the product of failure, and I don't think anything I've seen from him has like failed yet. No, like, no. Like the idea that um, Showgirls is a failure is just completely wrong. I feel like this movie is, gets exactly everything right. And yeah. there's something about, like, the texture of it and all of, like, the bright lights and the, the aspect ratio is kind of weird as well. Um, it just, like, feels, like, so lasered in and focused. And um, I like I want to live in this Vegas world. Like, I want to be, like, in that dressing room where there's just constant, like, lasers and, like, bright, blinding white light everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. I mean... It is. It, I, I just don't under... Like... I, I to bring it back to, to earlier, the sake the fact that they're doing maximalism in this way, yeah, it's like the Duchamp put the toilet in the museum and sell it for two million dollars. Like I think people have this idea that facts and logic and appeals to reason matter, but you also could just do things because you want to. Uh, like, what is stopping you from going into a cheesecake factory and pissing your pants? Like, seriously. <laughs> for, it be, it, because you want, like, to me, that's what is really most beautiful about life and expression is that once you realize that, like, there are no rules and you can kind of just do whatever you want with uh, the obvious tools and limitations of tools that you have, but you can use those to whatever means you want. And, like, as long as you're not afraid of the consequences, which you never should be, uh, because that will never work out. And ultimately you satisfy nobody by doing that. Uh, it, it starts to be very clear that you literally can do anything you want. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if people had the same willpower that, like, Bowie and Paul Verhoeven do, like, we could actualize kind of, like, the through the valley of the nest of spiders, like, infinite, like, yeah. uh, hedonistic sex orgy on Earth. But it's, like, there are so many, like, systems and barriers of history that are uh, people ch willingly choose to lock themselves behind that keep people away from touching, like, the, the truly, like, erotic universe that's uh lurking beneath the flesh of society right and ultimately it's like the appeals that we try to make to reason logic have ultimately been nothing but a failure i mean the 20th century has been a complete fucking disaster mm -hmm. and it's like we we don't even have blood rights in the same way that we used to we used to like our sacrifices used to mean something now people just die in these in these like we've killed more people in the last hundred years than any s century in history 
And it didn't even look cool when we did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, so like, take that with like, as you will, but, and, and now it looks even less cool because you have Joe Biden and he's like, I killed ISIS K. What the fuck is ISIS? Like at least ISIS, when they kill people, looks cool. You know, they're not just drone striking some fucking brown family in Afghanistan after they take all their money away. You, you know, it's just like this whole pathetic thing where like a drone is going to drop off your pack. It's going to kill a bunch of a school bus full of children in, in some third world country. Like it's it's just what's most devastating about it is it all looks so bad that it's done in vain. I mean, like the fashion in which people are doing things, even acts of terror, like the Twin Towers, like say what you will, but the stock, Carline Stockhausen made some pretty good points. He's like, that's very, he was like, it was a work of art. No, yeah. And I did a whole episode with Yana on my show about um, like terrorism as art. And I, it's something I've been thinking a lot about as well with like school shootings and like the registry of mass violence, like in the 21st century has um, gone from like at the very tail end of the, you know, 21st or 20th century with, um, you know, Columbine happening and then with uh, the Twin Towers. And like, those are the last like great pieces of, um, you know, moving art that kind of brought everyone together in a, a really, you know, impressive way and since then shootings have just like this very static and uninteresting tenor to them um mm. and we've kind of like lost uh, a sort of like deity there and i feel like the same way with the eroticism of of showgirls which is um and kind of like the same sort of like explosive sexuality as like that the planes like crashing into the towers and having no access and like no means to enter like that unhinged state of sexuality in any art anymore is just so heartbreaking to me and i you know i long for some author or some filmmaker or musician to tap back into that world that is still very much there but has just been like left untouched because of however many systems or historical obstacles you've locked yourself behind mm. yeah that's a good point and i i think bringing things to a public space is really really important like art like i kind of see podcasting as art and aesthetics that can be a, a ground to inspire new formations down the line which is why i love this whole thing that everyone's doing now where they're doing like field recording podcasts mm -hmm. because they're merging they're recording the experience and integrating it with the event kind of like what brendan does i did it one time like episode 40 but i, I i'm even sort of like on the bandwagon like no that's what i really really want to do now like i want to do I want to sort of experience things and I'm sort of organizing this weird performance thing. Uh, and I just feel like, you know, we need a fluxus movement and we need something like when you talk about terrorist attacks, it's an event. An event is something that breaks the, you know, it breaks up the way that we experience the world and the way that we transmit meaning and meaning is is transmitted through time and not space. So if we mm -hmm. if we experience time in a different way, 
then that's how we gain. That's what basically organizes our, like that. That's what organizes things, you know, like that's what organizes our, our sense of structure to rituals, to uh, objects of affection and meaning. And like the twin towers are so iconic. And, you know, when you go see a, a movie, like, when you see something in a place it's not supposed to be, like the Twin Towers falling, they were not supposed to fall. Showgirls is not supposed to be shown in a commercial movie theater. It's supposed to be like jerked off to on VHS, which is why like it would be the perfect movie to go see in a fucking theater. Um, in a, you know what I mean? It's like when you have something where it's not supposed to be, it create that creates the event. So if people start to think like, how am I going to make events? Like, what is an event? Uh, an event is basically something that is, it's something that shouldn't be where it is. Mm-hmm. And others can experience it collectively. And, yeah, and- you're, you're so right that like Showgirls became an event and the audacity to give this the NC-17 right. rating and show it in, you know, megaplexes basically is yeah. like, that it turns, you know, it, by implementing like time and uh, the power to like witness this in a group, like witness it in a group setting, um, as like a shared experience, and as you said, like an event, like gives not only like the film on its own the merit of a true artistic experience, but also like the experience of its release cycle and its, you know role Mm. in the public sphere like that gives it its own like tenor of art as well like showgirls isn't just like a film it's also like a collective (laughs) experience that like yeah and the fact that that collective experience is like so like well known and like people like were like racing to see this on like on uh rental after it came out and like i just can't believe that the, the movie that it was is this totally like perverse like unhinged um just total dionysian melt uh, with women with their tits and clits out the whole time, um, endless, like, bright lighting, um, and the best dialogue ever written, and no one can convince me otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's... I I almost lament that it sold so many copies in VHS, and it ended up making all of the money that it lost, uh, and it, it made a lot of money, Um purely because people wanted to masturbate to it in the privacy of their own homes because it was so hot. Um, I wish people had gone to see it in theaters more, but again, you know, this wasn't something that was supposed to be mass consumed in public. So, but the fact that it was done there, like that is the art, like a urinal with somebody's name on it isn't art if it's in a fucking bathroom it's art because you managed to get it into a museum like Mm -hmm. that's what makes it art right it makes it art um forget the artist's name i fucking forget his fucking name but he does a lot of stuff and and michael kreber does a lot of stuff with him too and he he did this thing where he paid these people to vandalize the gallery he was showing at. he's like an edge lord i fucking Jasper, uh, God, what's his fucking name? Mike. Something or other. <laughs> I, I forget his name because it's really late here and I'm bad with European names right now. But yeah, he, he paid these people to vandalize the gallery he was showing at. And then he had them remove the parts of the gallery that was vandalized and stack it in the gallery to sell 
as the artwork and didn't tell anybody this. Like, I like that, like, because it's so fucking ridiculous and stupid, like, and it so doesn't belong anywhere. Like, like I, I, I find so much about art, where is there a void? And how do you put something there in this empty space that just does not belong there? Like, where? how can you take something and put it in the place that it doesn't belong? And, 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 and it's so much fun to imagine the, the ability that you can do that, that you can just like, I don't know, just like fucking stage a weird performance at a barbecue restaurant. It, it, you know what I mean? Like I did yeah. this weird performance where I, I wheeled my friend out in a wheelchair. Is it a studded yarmulke on in New York City for the NPC? But even the fact that it was at the NPC Fest, that didn't make it an event because it, because it was, it felt staged, right? Like it, it has to be intentionally in the wrong place. And Showgirls was in the wrong place, which is what differentiates it from any other hot movie or hot porno. It mm-hmm. gives it its power and its lore and its allure. So I see it as a, as a monumental work of art. And it doesn't even matter what goes on in the movie because it succeeds it succeeds based on that alone. So Yeah. And I have to say that there are some pieces of like the actual film that just inspire so much joy in me. Um I find um all of the women just like constantly like catfighting with each other to be such a delight. Um I love uh the violence of falling down the stairs and being dropped and tripping on jewels and screaming and the endless like writhing in this movie. Um, not to mention that Madonna was originally supposed to play Crystal. Oh, that makes sense. Can you imagine if, if Madonna had played Crystal in this, then it would be the best movie ever made. I think. (laughs) Oh, probably. Yeah. And I just, I am infatuated with the whole idea of this messy sexual knot of a film um becoming an enormous a piece of performance art on its own and um that kind of will and the ability to turn not only the art that kind of like questions this uh nebulous idea of fame and accidentally creates the perfect portraiture of america it's exactly what david bowie was doing as well with how he presented himself and you were mentioning like how um at some of the performances for his uh heroes tour that he had a just like women like screaming at the front like gathered in this like religious uh religious uh, ceremony together to to see him perform and i was thinking about him performing um you know v2 schneider like in osaka and like people actually like applauding and like cheering to hear yeah them. and i just my god it's so incredible to me that there was and, and has been these wonderful manifest like harnessing of cultural power and this total ability to manipulate yourself and and your art into a a greater cultural moment yeah and it's sad to see people dwindle these resources on stupid bullshit like nfts and the the merging of art and technology and and thinking about platforms and institutions it's like that's not art i mean go to a place and do something that where it doesn't belong, you know, like seriously, like 
if you pissed yourself at Applebee's, that would be a greater, way greater work of art than any of this like digital pedantic bullshit that people are doing. And I I just, I really do believe that just like piss yourself at Applebee's if you feel like doing it. And that's like amazing art to me. I don't know. Like showgirls is incredible. Like it succeeds on every level. And the fact that it succeeded financially in the aftermath of being a, a massive disappointment that was $45 million expense, like <laughs> yeah. that, the, the fact that it succeeded purely because it was so hot in the aftermath that people could just fat to it after, like, I just don't, you know, it's really stupid when the, the trad cast socialist leftist, the, conservative people they want to like talk about how like semen retain and this is like a small fringe internet thing i don't believe or just anybody who believes this shit like who fucking cares it's so funny it's like you do realize that orgone and cum has powered like you know has actually powered machinery like you can harness sec the expenditure of sexual energy to actually create new things. I mean, Wilhelm Reich was changing the fucking weather with it, you know? So I yeah. don't understand this whole idea that you should never come or have sex. Like you're fucking, what, what are you doing? You're just wasting. Like that's a waste, why? Like, I, I don't get it. So yeah, I'm very against this like, thing of you should just never come and you should never eat seed oils or ice cream or whatever the fuck you want like it's just this neuroses is so ah retarded I i can't i can't take the neurotic shit it's just i can't I can't at all. Every... And I like the the answer to finishing off like seed oil neuroses and sex negative trad cats. All of this garbage is a uh, to harness the power of David Bowie and Paul Verhoeven and to jerk off in an Applebee's and come on the wall. Yeah. <laughs>